Welcome back this evening as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. As we look at Luke's perspective on Jesus' life, he gives us many interesting perspectives as a Gentile author, and um, the way he wrote uh, this account ties directly into what he would write about the followers of the way, the church, uh, in his account of Acts. I want to ask you tonight before we begin, who was the most impactful teacher you ever had? High school, college. Uh, we had lots of teachers growing up, uh, from from all you know kindergarten all the way up, and however far you went. But who was it, uh, male or female? Uh, who was that special teacher that inspired you? That drove you to want to know more, to grow wiser, who had an insightful way of imparting wisdom, who had a unique method of teaching, who had a, a, just a way of instructing and imparting uh, that connected with you, that resonated with you. I had several, um, and a couple in high school. Uh, one of them was Mrs. Carson. Mrs. Carson was my senior English, also sophomore English teacher. Uh, no, I didn't fail sophomore English, okay. Um, but uh, she was just a great teacher. She was engaging. She uh, you know, had all of the, the students facing one another. She did a lot of uh, a Socratic method and asking questions and sort of helping us understand the meaning of literature and English and, and what the author was trying to say and then, and then helping us connect as... Uh, the mushy skulls that we were, uh, with how those ideas translated into our lives and, and what they meant for us. I had another great teacher, Mrs. Batman. She was our uh, drama and speech teacher. Uh, she, she very much encouraged me in a lot of the public speaking and that I did at that age, which wasn't very much, but uh, she always had good things to say. She always stretched us, encouraged to get outside the comfort zone to do things that we hadn't done before. Moving to college, uh, one of my favorite professors was Dr. Stafford North. He was a very logical thinker. He 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 was biblical. He he absolutely in every study that he presented, whether it was a college class that he had taught for years or a, a new study, something that he was bringing out, he poured himself into that, was studying the book of Revelation or, or Daniel or evangelism methods uh, or, or uh, how to defend your faith, how to, uh, all of these classes I remember taking at his feet and, and uh, you know, 50 years my senior easily, but he was uh, passionate, he enjoyed learning, he enjoyed seeing others learn, and I kept in communication for many years, in fact, just the other day I messaged Dr. North about another matter, but uh, a man whose opinion I greatly respect and who has impacted a lot of people in the church. Another one was uh, Bob Gregg. He was a preacher at Mustang, Oklahoma, Church of Christ, and he was uh, an, sort of an adjunct professor there at Oklahoma Christian, but it's just the way he taught um, every time we came to the text he, you could just tell his heart was wrapped in the text and his heart wanted to be true to what the Bible said and how we apply it in our lives. So uh, a few impactful teachers on me, uh, and maybe you've, as I've been 
going on about those teachers that impacted me, you've been thinking about the teachers that have impacted you and maybe maybe also why they impacted you. Teachers have that influence. Now, of course, there are, there are, as with any profession, there are teachers who give the profession a bad name, and they, they don't bring any passion, any joy. They're just, you know, marking off the years until they collect their retirement. And they're, they're not there to teach. They're just there to, to, to bide their time. But the, the, those exceptional teachers, and they make a difference. I mean, they make a real impact. Jesus was the master teacher. One of the most impactful books that I have in my studies uh, was a book called The Teaching Like Jesus Taught. And it goes in-depth looking at the teaching methods of Jesus from story to uh, the parables, uh, visuals, object lessons, even his sense of humor. He, he taught in a way, and it wasn't just, of course, because he had that element of divine knowledge and truth, and I think that was certainly part of it, but there was a way in which he imparted that. Um, and I, We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, starting about verse 17. But some other gospel accounts tell us this while you're turning to Luke 6, 17. The book of Matthew records this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, just an example, there are two different types of teachers. Both had knowledge, but, but, but there was something the way in which Jesus taught that left the people whom he taught changed. He was doing that all the time. The book of John, chapter 7, verse 46, uh, it was recorded of Jesus, no one has ever spoke the way this man does. And that was from some guards, some Roman guards. Uh, clearly, Jesus was someone who impacted not just the people that he knew, but people outside his circle. He taught using lecture. He taught using story. He taught using humor. He taught using visuals and hyperbole and questions. He engaged the mind. He engaged the heart. Whether it was just he and Peter or whether it was him and five to 10,000 people, Jesus taught in a way that changed the hearts of men. And we don't have all of his teachings. Scripture records a couple of his sermons. Tonight, we're going to the, what, what is called the Sermon on the Plain. Not the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably more familiar, but Luke's account. Now, uh, we're going to look at this sermon and consider five important lessons uh, as we think about this. So, we're in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 and we're, we're going to be the speedboat going across the water tonight. We're covering a lot of ground, uh, and this is not in-depth, exhaustive study. This is looking at some of the important lessons that Jesus imparted in this most beautiful of lessons and sermons. As I said, Luke was called the Sermon on the Plain. It's similar to Matthew, uh, but yeah, and you'll see some things that, that sound similar and familiar, but yet there are some distinctions. There are some things that are not in Matthew's account. There are some, some different arrangements of the order and so on. Uh, read a couple of different commentaries and, and not going to bore you with that those details. But my personal opinion is these are two separate lessons. I think Jesus did, as a lot of teachers do, 
teaching the things that they're an expert on, they repeat things. If, if you have a favorite, uh, especially preacher or speaker, and you, you know, every time you go to a conference or a lecture or something like that, and you hear them, you're likely going to hear some of the same stories and things, because they, they practice that. They know, and they, they, they know they can resonate with an audience with those things. Now, now, Jesus wasn't quite a teacher in that way, but I think in the same way throughout his ministry, there were times when Jesus told the same parable or at maybe asked the same question or gave the same visual to make the same point because he was speaking to different audiences. So tonight we go to the master's class and we're going to learn, uh, I, I said five lessons, we're going to learn four lessons with, with some application there at the end. So lesson number one, as we start in Luke chapter six, verse 17, uh, today's burdens today will become blessings tomorrow. And this is only with Jesus, okay? This is, this is important to, to remember. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. I'll begin reading if you'll follow along. And he came down with him and stood on a level place. This is why we call it the Sermon on the Plain. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God and blessed are you who are hungry for you will be satisfied and blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did also to the prophets. Disciples, followers of Jesus are never ever promised a life of ease and comfort. And I realize preachers can get a much bigger audience uh, when they teach that they do. People like to hear that kind of stuff. Call it health and wealth and prosperity. But those verses and scriptures that are cherry-picked and twisted into such a terrible theology, namely because then when something terrible happens, when the doctor diagnoses cancer, when, when someone loses a child, when, when, when you lose someone close to you, when you go through very hard things, sickness and illness, when you're, when you're persecuted because of your faith in Jesus, people who've built on the foundation that with Jesus, I'll get nothing but health and wealth and prosperity and good parking spots and the like, uh, that foundation rapidly begins to crumble when they come upon hard times because they assume then that Jesus is not blessing them or that they, for some reason, are not with Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus was absolutely clear on this point. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. How? How can we have peace? Because life is going to be perfect and easy and grand. There will be no problems. No, he said this. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I, resonating with this morning's lesson, have overcome the world. Jesus 
certainly had trouble and would face a great deal, would lose a lot of his ministry. I mean, if you were to take a step back and just pull yourself back from the idea of Jesus for a second and say, this guy at one time had crowds of five, ten thousand 10,000 people. And then he began to kind of go off and he began to teach them hard things and people turned back and no longer followed him. And eventually everybody turned away from him, including those his closest disciples. And he was uh, spat upon and beaten and mocked. He died a criminal's death. You'd say, wow. What did that guy do wrong? No, no, that guy was doing everything right. Sometimes you do the right things, bad things will happen. That's part of living in a broken, sinful world. But, but Jesus uses this word again and again and again and again. He, he, he's speaking to those who are suffering. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed who are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep. Now, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. Now, if just on a, based on a simple reading, one thing to initially address here is this word blessed most often is misinterpreted as the word happy. Uh, when you think about the word happy and you, enter, you, you, you just replace it there with the word blessed, it absolutely makes no sense. Happy are you who are poor. Happy are you who are hungry. Happy are you who weep. Happy are you when people hate you. Now see, see, Jesus is not talking about happy, which is an emotion, the, 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 the sharing the root word of the same of happenstance, which means to come and to go. Not, not Jesus is going much more deeper below the surface, saying, you may be happy. There may be times of happiness, but, but, but deeper within you, within the soul, within the heart, is a, a well of great joy. Remember that story in the book of Acts? And they go out and they beat Paul and Silas and they tell them strictly, cut it out. And they throw them in prison. And about midnight, they start, I got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Oh, why are they singing hymns at midnight to God after going through such a day like that? Because there was something deep within inside them that, that, that no cat of nine tails could touch. There, were, there was something that no matter what they threw at them couldn't, couldn't reach the joy and, and the, the, the promise that they held on to, the power of resurrection. And so Jesus is saying, when you're blessed, he's not saying happy, 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 happy. Everybody's just happy, happy, happy. That's great for Phil Robertson, but <laughs> that's not exactly true in, in going the distance with Christ. What he's saying is, is you've got something deeper to anchor the heart to so anchor there, blessed people have joy even in the midst of difficulty. Why? Because they have perspective. When you have that resurrection perspective, you realize that the burdens today will not compare to what lies ahead. Far, far better things lie ahead of us than behind us. In Christ now, in Christ, and that's important to understand. We understand too in Christ that the, the, the destination far exceeds the journey. And you get focused so much on the journey and the ups and the downs of that, but you forget where you're going. You're, you're headed for trouble. When you're focused on the destination, you realize where you're headed and where your true citizenship lies, you understand that you truly are blessed regardless of the ups and the downs of the journey. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the Apostle Paul spoke to this. Of course, Paul suffered in many ways, and he said, For I consider... That the sufferings, 
of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful and powerful at the same time? Is he's not even not even going to talk about the sufferings, and 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 Paul had plenty of room to talk about the sufferings, but they 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 weren't even worth mentioning in comparison to the glory that he knew was coming. Think about this. Uh, try to think of a some way to illustrate this. Imagine that you have a long lost great great uncle, and you are the direct inheritance. This great great uncle, by the way, happens to be fabulously wealthy. Uh, and you stand to inherit easily a hundred million dollars directly to you, tax free. The, the only catch is, the only problem is, is he, he lives. He was kind of a eccentric guy, and he lived in a, in a jungle hut halfway around the world. And you had to go meet up with his lawyer there. Now, getting there would be a long, difficult, trying journey, right? But you you wouldn't. Pay much attention to that because you know that the destination with it brings a far greater reward than anything the journey would ever cost you. That's my simple, not biblical, but hopefully parable to help you understand what Jesus is saying when he uses the word blessed. You're destined for a great destination. In fact, when Bible writers tried to describe it, the basic commonality of all the descriptions of the the, the dwelling of God and God's people in eternity is, this is so far beyond human language, I can't even begin to do it. Isn't that cool? That's where you're headed in Jesus Christ. So uh, don't pay too much attention to the journey. Don't get too caught up in the journey. Uh, your, Your trials, your burdens, your... I don't mean to make little of it, but, but in light of eternity, I'm, I'm kind of making little of it. Christians lose their way when they get focused on the journey instead of the, the destination. And Christians fall away when they get so caught up in the journey that they forget to pay attention to where they're going. We've we got to remember the other half of this equation. This is lesson number two. With Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, without Jesus, your biggest blessings in the world are brief. Now, going back to the text, verse 24 of Luke 6. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall still mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. We don't like to dwell too much here in the land of woe. And we don't like to hear about woes. Well, I see enough of that on the news. I read enough about it. I I don't really want to come to church and hear about the woes, but... We gotta, we gotta listen. We gotta pay attention. I know it's kind of depressing, but maybe Jesus is trying to say something here that would be worth paying attention to. My story for this is uh, came from a book of uh, the the little child and his grandmother. They would he would spend a, a day or two at his grandmother's, and one of the things they began to do was play games together. One of his favorite games to play because he could never win, uh, was the game of Monopoly. He would play that with his grandmother. They would spend hours 
over the course of a couple of days, um, sometimes playing just a single game. Well, he finally learned how to play Monopoly well, and uh, he did the unthinkable. He skunked his grandma playing Monopoly. And with all the enthusiasm of, of childhood, went around just hooting and hollering and throwing his fake money in the air and just having a great time. And his grandmother says with the wisdom of the ages, that I'm, I'm glad you've learned to play the game. But there's just one final thing you need to remember, that it's my game. And when the game's over, no matter who wins, it all goes back in the box. Sometimes we're tempted, even amongst those of us who sit in pews regularly, to get real caught up in the game and winning the game and forgetting that it all goes back in the box. Don't, don't mix up what's temporary and what's eternal. And, and that's who Jesus is talking to here. Woe to you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people seek well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Some people, you ever play Monopoly with people who play for real? I mean, they play serious. I'm that guy at our household, by the way. None of our family likes to play because I don't let up. I mean, I will force you into bankruptcy. I don't know what it is, but I just get caught up in this silly little game and winning it. Sometimes there are people who get caught up in, in, a, in a much larger game with prettier money and w- with bigger houses and hotels. And, 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 and don't misunderstand, okay? It's, it's not wrong to have money. The problem is when money begins to have you. And, and that can happen, by the way, at any income level. Okay? You can become a slave to money almost at any income level. Jesus is saying, just remember that these blessings in this world were not meant to last. So don't, so don't focus on them. Don't treat temporary things like eternal things. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul wrote... <laughs> But our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there. I can use a monopoly illustration for a lot of things. I'm talking about money and stuff and all that. There's some people who really tie their hearts up in politics. I mean, they just tie themselves up. I mean... It, you know, depending on which way the election goes, kind of depends on how their, their next two to four years is going to be, right? And they're getting caught up in a, in a game of this world. And it's easy to lose your focus when you do that. Some people get focused on relationships, moving up the power structure, being well-connected, being in the in-group. And there's nothing wrong with having friends and connections and all of that, but... There are times when we forget where our citizenship really lies. Without Jesus, the truth is, earth is the closest to heaven you'll ever be. And there are good things about this world, but it wasn't meant to be permanent. In fact, Jesus is going to absolutely burn it up 
all of it. This blue rock, all the other rocks surrounding this blue rock, the shiny rocks way out there, black holes that we found, it's, it's all going to be kindling someday. Don't get too attached to it. Everyone lives in the world. The, the point is to make sure you're ready to leave the world. Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you if you live in the world but aren't ready to leave it. The toughest thing about Jesus' love is the third lesson. That Jesus calls us to love others as he loves us. Verse 27. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Blessed are those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who wants to take away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that to others would do to you, so you do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And do not lend to those from whom you expect to receive. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. All of those challenges to love, I mean, you can just take one verse and almost build a whole sermon series out of it. I mean, it's challenging stuff. But all of this is is calling us to love as we are loved. To love others in the way that God gracefully and undeservedly loves us. The apostle of love said famously in verse John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us. See, see, Luke 6, 27 through 38 is really challenging if you don't understand the love of God. If you don't see a responsibility to do something other than just receive, receive, receive the love of God. God never meant you to be a one-way vessel. Okay, he, he, he wants to pour his love into you, but he expects at some point that you begin to overflow with the same love that was poured into you, into others. Isn't that hard? Oh, sure it is. Are there people who are unworthy? Absolutely. And maybe God is trying to teach you the way in which he loves you and I. You should learn to love difficult people because here's a hard truth. You're one of them. God loved you anyway, and God showed you his grace anyway, and he gave to you that which you did not deserve anyway, and he gave to you what you didn't even know you needed anyway. He did all that for you because he loved you. When we love as he loved, we realize quickly that true I'm talking about true love, not love in the sense that the world speaks of love, but I mean true, godly, agape love is both difficult and costly 
And when we learn to do it one step at a time, we begin to learn to become closer and more in the image of our Father, which is what he says at the close. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When you think how good he's been to you, overflow with that to others. No, they don't deserve it. They certainly couldn't earn it. In fact, Jesus says, there are going to be some who can't even pay you back. That's okay. Because it's not about that anyway. The measure of love we use is, by the way, the measure of love used toward us. You ever notice that the most loving, joyful people tend to be surrounded by people who love them and are joyful with them? You ever notice that the most angry, uh, just went into a part of my brain, I'll not get it back. The curmudgeons of life, they're sour. I mean, they just look like they were weaned on a pickle. They're just always looking for a reason to criticize or complain or condemn. You know, that's strange that the people, there's, first of all, not very many people around that person. They don't want to be around them. But when they're not around them, all they're doing is complaining and criticizing about that person. The measure you use will be the measure used to you. And now, and now for the fourth lesson, Jesus makes it real personal. Jesus wants you to change first. And when you read through this sermon, we inevitably think of, of all the people that you wish were here tonight to hear this message. They really need to hear it. Uh, but Jesus, when he taught this, was speaking to each and every person who heard him. He was speaking to them. He was speaking to you. He was speaking to me. He wasn't concerned about the people who are not there. He wanted them to go first. Verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? No, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, and you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? You hypocrite, first, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly Take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I've heard this section of scripture used to teach a lot of things to a lot of people. But Jesus was speaking to us individually. He's saying act justly. Not not in a social justice kind of way. But just, just consider the measure you use. Because it's going to be used to you. I consider myself a pretty patient fellow, but sometimes when I get less than impatient, I will kind of grip my jaw. 
And I will say, may it be to you as you have done. Sometimes under my breath, sometimes I've been so bold as to say it to them. Whether or not they understand it, I do not know. But what it means is exactly the sentiment that Jesus is using here. It's going to be to you as you have done. And so we be careful on how we judge. Be careful on how we give. Be careful in the specs that we take a lot of time to pick and gnaw over in other people. While ignoring the plank in our own eyes. It's fair to say that I've been to the optometrist a lot of times in my life, from a very young age. And I can tell you, even from a young age, if I went into my optometrist first time, and he walked in with a cane and a pair of sunglasses on, I'd be a little bit concerned about seeing a blind optometrist. You should not trust a shop teacher with missing fingers. Just a little piece of advice. They still offer shop anymore. <laughs> Why? Because those that are leading the way, teaching that are supposed to be helping, clearly cannot help themselves. Jesus <clears throat> is calling the Pharisees blind here, and he's doing it for a reason. They, they, they knew what was right, but they didn't do what is right. Boy, there's a world of difference. And we spend a lot of time, even, even in the church, making sure we help people to know what's right. But that's usually not the problem, really. I mean, I, there are probably occasions where very immature people come out of the world and all of that. I'm not saying teaching doesn't need to be done, clearly. Okay? But the key problem is not knowing it. My, my guess is I haven't told you anything, really, like you read, like, oh, I've never heard this before. But the challenge is, will you, will you put it into practice? That's where it becomes key. Jesus ended the message the way, the way that a lot of preachers end the message, by the way. He told, he told a story. Luke chapter 6, 43. For no tree bears, good, uh, bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, the first thing we got to get here is, it really is possible to know a person's heart. It is. You simply pay attention to their actions. Almost entirely ignore their words. If you really want to know the nature of a person, just pay attention to how they act and how they treat others. Trees can't much be separated from their fruit. So you shouldn't be surprised when you go into an apple orchard and you find apples. That's what you expect. Jesus said, in the heart's the same way. 
And if you're having trouble quite paying attention, maybe they mask their, their actions pretty well and they put on a good front. Well, just listen to their words. Out of the overflow of that old heart comes the mouth every single time. Continuing, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Wise people, wise people are not people who know what Jesus said. Sunday night crowds on Easter Sunday, I'm guessing you've probably heard more sermons than I've been alive. And that's worthy of a ribbon, and I will pin them on you at the back. But that really doesn't matter to Jesus. Because he says here, I got two men and I want to tell you about them and and they're this. And both of them, if you pay attention, both of them heard the words of Jesus. But only one of them began to apply them. That's where it makes the difference. What matters is not that you know Jesus' teachings or that you hear Jesus' teachings or that you've got a Bible full of outlines and handouts completely full or that you have every single verse in your Bible underlined and highlighted. What matters is did you do what Jesus said to do? Did you put that into action? Jesus had no patience, if you remember the story, with fruitless trees. He sort of chastised a infamous fig tree. Jesus had even less patience with fruitless lives. And people who hear Jesus' words but don't live Jesus' words, Jesus would call those barren trees, fruitless trees. So does your life bear fruit? And are you building in a wise those who, those who do what Jesus said, those are the folks building on the rock, building on a foundation. You know, at some point, all of us will face a great, you know, the stream's going to break against us, the flood's going to come our way. And the time to prepare for that is not when it's happening. The time to prepare for the stream breaking out, the flood breaking over, is now. And so when we apply these words, we're preparing now so that in the time of the storm, our house will stand. Jesus covered a lot and and taught us a lot. Tonight, I just want to simply ask you a question. Have you built your life on the foundation of Jesus? Are you living each day Building on the foundation of Jesus. Not just hearing the words, but putting them into practice.
That's why the master was the master teacher. That's what the master's class was all about. Just teaching them things to hear, giving them things to do. So tonight my question is, if you're not building on Jesus a foundation, why are you waiting? What are, you, are you waiting for the storm to hit, for your house to come crashing down before you begin taking Jesus seriously? Don't wait. Don't wait that long. And please, God forbid, anyone here that does not know Jesus, that has not obeyed Jesus, don't wait and risk stepping into eternity without Jesus. He's the only way. He's the only hope. And if you need him tonight, if you're ready to obey him by doing what he said to do to begin that journey, or if you have been claiming to follow Jesus, you know a lot of his teachings, but you haven't been putting it into practice, maybe you need to repent, you need us to pray with you and for you, we'll be glad to do that as well. If you have a need tonight, please respond by coming down front. I'll meet you there as together we stand and sing.